CBS Epidemiology, I am Haley Bannock from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined again by my friend and co-host, Matt Fox from Boston University. Hey, Matt, how's it going? I'm doing well, Haley. It's good to get back to chatting with you. I have to say, I have been listening back to the episodes of the podcast, and I, I, I have really been enjoying it. I think I'm going to go ahead and write a, a review and say how much I like our podcast. So you enjoy listening to you and I have conversations? <laughs> I do. What could be more fun than listening to us talk to each other? I think you are one in a million on that because and I know a lot of our guests actually when we offer to them to listen to the episode before it comes out, they say, no, thank you. I can't stand listening to myself. Yeah, I recognize that I I may be one of the, the only ones who feels this way, but hey, it's fun to go back and listen. And the thing is, I never remember what it is we said when I go back and listen to them. So, you know, it's like each time I'm I'm getting something new out of it for the, as if it's the first time. Oh, that's perfect. So you learn something new by listening to your own podcast. Yeah, is that weird? Yeah, and, and with the, so for those who are listening to this um, throughout the season, we are going through the entire um, fourth edition of Modern Epidemiology. And I have to say, just like with reading the book, I learn something new every time we have a conversation about these topics because there's so much detail and nuance in each of these chapters. So thanks for teaching me something new every time we listen, Matt. Yeah, I, I know that when um, this book is something that I have my doctoral students read, and I know that they find it challenging, but I think that every time I go back and read these chapters, I get something new out of it. And then talking with you about it definitely helps me solidify the way that I'm thinking about it. And so really, for me, any opportunity to, to spend, spend some time thinking about really important, complex stuff is time well spent. Yeah, and, and it, it takes time for it to settle. I know for me, uh, specifically when I'm when I'm reading this stuff and learning about it, it doesn't always click on the first go around or the second or, or maybe third go around. It takes time for it to marinate in my head. Um, and, and then, you know, things start to click together. But it's this is these are complicated topics. And, you know, they, they wouldn't be in modern epi if they were simple. So uh, today we have a great opportunity to talk a little bit about confounders and confounding. So we are pleased to welcome Dr. Maya Mather to the podcast uh, to have a, a conversation about chapter 12 in modern epi 4. So Dr. Mather obtained her PhD in biostatistics from Harvard University. She is an assistant professor at the Stanford University Quantitative Sciences Unit. Her statistical research develops methods for sensitivity analysis and evidence synthesis, and she has a particular interest in meta-analysis. Her substantive research focuses on behavioral health and experimental cognitive sciences. Welcome to the podcast, Maya. Thank you. My pleasure. Great. We're really glad to have you today. So uh, as listeners of the podcast may know, uh, before we begin with the hard stuff, the hard hitting questions, we like to ask our, our guests a few lighter questions so everyone can get to know you a bit better. So I guess the first question I'll, I'll start off with is um, if you could have an extra hour of free time every day, how would you use it? Well, probably what I should use it for is uh, folding my laundry on time. That's probably oh, yes. my least favorite chore. So I have, you know, a whole hamper of laundry that I washed yesterday and still have not folded. So that's what I should do. Uh, probably what I would actually do is uh, just engage in, in hobbies more, hiking, uh, reading books, things like that. Okay, so what is your particular general laundry strategy? Like how often do you find yourself doing your laundry? 
Oh, like zero. I mean, I'm so bad at it. I, I stuff it in the drawer and that's it's it's all good. <laughs> okay, so the people who I absolutely cannot be friends with are the people who can fold a fitted sheet. It's a it's a marker that I know I cannot be friends with a person if they can do it. <laughs> you're, you're viewing it wrong. You want to be friends with those people so they can help teach you things. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I could ever actually learn how to do it. I've tried many, many times and I consider it to be completely impossible and it just ends up making me feel bad. That's fair. Yeah, I, I try. I've actually watched YouTube videos on how to do it and somehow it always ends up rolled up. Like it, it's never flat folded. It's it's very frustrating. I'm still trying to work on just folding shirts. I'm a, a few levels below that. <laughs> I'd also like to point out that you said something like, I have a bin of laundry from yesterday that needs to be folded. Yesterday, that's still within a very respectable, I still have last week's laundry in the bin. So much so that my kids are taking their socks out of the laundry bin onto their feet because there are no socks in the drawer. Well, that is the most parsimonious way to deal with it. Just never fold the laundry. Just work straight out of the hamper until you're done. Right. Yeah, I, my problem with that approach is... I never really know when something is just clean enough that I can wear it. Oh, well, that's how you do the sniff test to determine if it's clean or not. Um, all right, so so thanks for sharing that uh, a little bit about you. Um, another question I, I, I like to ask our guests is, since it's an Olympic year um, and the, the Olympics are, are happening, or actually kind of two back-to-back, two back-to-back Olympicses, is that what we say, Olympicses? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Olympicses, <laughs> whatever the word is. Uh, if you could compete in any Olympic sport, just doesn't have to be realistic or related to any true talent that you have. It can be either summer or winter. What Olympic sport would you like to compete in? Oh, that's. I like the qualifier that it doesn't have to be something that I have any actual potential at. So then I could probably choose something. So I really like like weightlifting and men's gymnastics. I'm not. I have completely the wrong body type for both of these sports, but I would love to be good at either one of those. So I'll probably choose that one of those too. Oh, interesting. So, okay, let's probe on this gymnastics thing a little bit. Is it particular to men's gymnastics or gymnastics in general? It's men's because I like the rings. Um, so yeah, so only men have that in the Olympics. So uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'd like to be good at. Yeah, so this is something I've always wondered about. Why is it that the women's don't have the the rings yeah i well i'm not an expert but i assume like i think rings take a ton of upper body strength and probably less kind of flexibility than some of the women's parts do um mm. yeah i mean i think it's like it's yeah there are some of the moves for men's gymnastics on the rings and pommel i think are just requires so much kind of upper body strength to weight ratio that it's, it's probably uh, in general harder for women okay are there women's events that men don't have in the Olympics? Uh, sorry, in gymnastics, I mean. Yes, there are uh, the uneven mm. bars the the women do that the men oh, don't do. And then there's the beam, which the women do and the men don't do. Mm -hmm. And I, I have no idea how it came to be that they have these different events, but that is the case. Yeah, the rings thing is weird because those female gymnasts, well, male and female gymnasts, are incredibly strong like it's not you know it's not that female gymnasts don't have upper body strength so it's it's a weird it's a weird dichotomy yeah and pommel horse is the other one that uh men do and women don't so when i think of the pommel horse i'm probably dating myself right now but 
In the movie Sister Act, Sister Mary Clarence gets on the pommel horse. Does anyone know that reference? No? Just... Nope. I have never seen it. What? Yeah. It was actually on TV the other day. It brought me back to, to my younger years. Mm. All right. Anyways, enough about the pommel horse and gymnastic events. We are here to talk about confounding and confounders. So this is chapter 12 in the fourth edition of Modern Epi. And this is actually a new chapter in the textbook. I believe, because I forgot my fourth edition at the office and I was looking through my third edition thinking, oh, it's not going to be that different. Not mu that much has changed. And nope, this is a chapter that doesn't exist in the third edition. And when you say that, I assume that what you mean is the much, most of the content was there, but the specific chapter heading wasn't? Yeah, I, I assume so. But, you know, when I looked in the appendix, nope index that's what it's called the index of the third edition there's obviously lots of references to confounding but no solid chapter on it so so this is a, a, a something i learned as a new edition hmm. for this fourth edition okay. and so the chapter goes through different definitions of confounding it talks about topics like uh, how we select confounders whether you're using dags or sort of conceptual theoretical decision making to decide whether confounding is present talks about using statistical approaches to determine whether confounding is present, something like change and estimate approaches or forward and backward selection are some of the examples. And then it gets into conversations or topics, I suppose, about the definition or the differences between confounding and confounders, which I thought was interesting. It differentiates between confounding, selection bias, and over-adjustment bias, which I thought was another interesting section of the, the chapter. And then it concludes a little bit uh, with some stuff on bias analysis, formal bias analysis for unmeasured confounding, or I suppose they call it uncontrolled confounding, and then a section on the e-value, which is, which is obviously a new part of the chapter, a new part of a new chapter, uh, because it didn't exist when the third edition came out. So I guess the first thing I want to do is get us all on the same page. So, so Maya, how do you define confounding? I would define confounding or confounders as variables that affect the exposure and that also independently affect the outcome. And one sort of important implication of that is that in order for a variable to affect the exposure, it needs to actually occur temporally before the exposure. So sort of another piece that's sometimes added to that definition is that these need to be pre-treatment variables. Okay. And so the book goes into depth about these different criteria to assess whether a variable is a confounder. So as you said, the, the first criteria is whether the confounder is a risk factor for the outcome. And then the second, I think, gets one step more complex than that. And that's the confounder must be associated with the exposure in the source population. So when I learned this, I remember learning it for the first time, this kind of level of nuance was from the Sklow and Nieto textbook. And it talks about the confounder needs to be associated with the exposure in the unexposed group, which is presumably because it's a, a stand-in for the source population, sort of that idea. When you think about these criteria, do you make that type of distinction or, or do you just think about it, you know, that's kind of a level of detail that's probably not actually practically important? Yeah, I do think you really want to be thinking about the source population. Um, in other words, kind of the marginal association between the confounder and the exposure, because essentially, like once you condition on exposure status, especially if you have a more rare exposure and you're looking only among the exposed, 
once you do that, you may have a different association than you would in the source population. So I guess one kind of example to, to, to understand that is let's say you had a confounder whose prevalence was uh, 20% in the unexposed, but 100% in the exposed. Clearly, marginally, it's associated with exposure, but if you only look among the exposed, there's no association because the confounder just is it's one, let's say, if it's binary for everyone. That is a helpful explanation. I, I think that sometimes they use a lot of words to explain these concepts. And then when you give a quantitative example, a clear quantitative example like that, it makes it much, much easier for me to understand. So, so thanks for sharing that. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about the distinction that they make in the text between the difference between confounders and confounding. I know that this is something that I spend a lot of time on when I teach the concepts, but I'm just curious how you think about the differences. Yeah, definitely. And so I think one way that it helps me to think about this distinction between kind of confounders and confounding is in terms of sort of sufficient versus necessary conditions. So like it's always the case that if you control for all confounders defined as variables that affect both the exposure and the outcome, in other words, they have to be pre-treatment, um, then that's sufficient to control for confounding bias, but it might not be necessary. It could be that you could control for fewer variables um, or different variables and that that would work just as well. So one example of this would be, well, so a trivial example would be if you have two confounders that are just completely collinear with one another, co co uh, correlation one, then you don't need to control for both of them, even though they are structurally both confounders. Or another example would be a confounder that just has prevalence zero among both the exposed and the unexposed. Don't need to control for that. Can't even control for that. Or, you know, maybe you have another variable that is structurally apparent of multiple confounders. So meaning it's, it's upstream of them in the DAG. And so then you could control for just that one parent and you wouldn't have to control for all of the individual confounders. So I guess that's a case where it makes sense to think of confounders as kind of a a sufficient set to control for confounding, where confounding is the bias. Yeah, I, I really like that. I mean, I, I have to admit, I think of it a little bit differently. I think about the distinction between the two being that confounding is, is the bias that results. Confounders are the variables that explain the confounding and are the tools that we use to remove the confounding. But ultimately, it's the confounding that we care about. And the confounders are really just sort of tools that we use to remove the confounding. Yeah, I guess I've tended to kind of gloss over that distinction a little bit myself in teaching kind of less advanced uh, groups of, of students, um, because I do think it can get a little bit confusing. And I guess in some sense, if people think primarily in terms of, okay, I need to kind of enumerate all the variables that are structurally confounders and then worry about all of those, then that's that's sufficient. It might be more work than you have to do, but at least you're doing enough work <laughs> if you've done that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. The, that distinction that we're talking about between confounding and confounders, I find is especially challenging for students that are just learning DAGs or just starting out in, in even an advanced epi setting. You really need to be very comfortable with DAGs to be able to understand that distinction. So to Matt's point, you focus on it, and, and I agree, from a conceptual perspective in our advanced students, it is an important concept to understand. I just worry sometimes that it's 
conflating how well somebody's understanding graphical approaches like DAGs with their understanding of the concept of confounding a little bit. That leads me to the next question I have, which is about, so you have a variable that you conceptually believe is a confounder. You draw it out, you you have a DAG, and something like age or smoking status, you know, it's associated with, with the exposure and the outcome. And then it actually does not change your effect estimates when you include that variable. And this is something that I have a hard time with when I'm teaching and in my own analyses. You know, For the most part, if I'm hoping to publish something, which is most of what I do, you know, I generally keep it in because I don't want to get six months from now and have a reviewer say to me, why didn't you include this? And you have to go back and figure it out. But from a, a conceptual standpoint, you know, how do you think through this issue when you're kind of dealing with the empirical quantitative effect of a confounder and confounding bias that it may or may not be inducing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of a couple things that would come to mind as as possible explanations. So kind of getting back to what we talked about earlier, it could be that this variable actually does have the structural relationships that would fulfill it's being a confounder, but that perhaps it's so rare that it's not actually inducing that much bias. And that actually is kind of falsifiable. You could actually look in your sample, at least, at, at its prevalence. And then the other the other thing that I would probably be investigating is its associations with other condition confounders, for example. Um, could it be that you know, you're adjusting for something that's just so highly correlated with other confounders that you've actually already left very little room for residual confounding. And, you know, that too could be kind of looked at empirically. I'm actually more concerned in settings where decisions about confounding control are made based on that controlling for a variable did change the estimate. That I think is more problematic um, than if the so-called change in estimate approach uh, than what you describe, where you don't see a change in the estimate and you feel sort of comforted by that. And so why would why would that be? Yeah, I mean, basically because there's several reasons that controlling for a variable could produce a change in the estimate that have nothing to do with that bias has been reduced even, um, nor even that it's that it's actually a confounder. So one reason being sort of non-collapsibility of certain statistical models, meaning essentially that the marginal version of a model is not just a weighted average of the corresponding conditional models. In other words, like conditioning on that confounder. And so like a classic example is something like logistic regression. And it's a property of the link function that's that's used in like a, a GLM framework. And so with logistic regression, if you control for some variable, even if it's not a confounder, you may not get the same estimate. And that's just simply because of the way that the expectations are not linear with respect to that particular like function. Um, so that's one reason. It could just be that you control for something in a model that's not collapsible. So the estimate's going to change um, no, no matter what that variable is. The other issue is that I, I think, Matt, you alluded to this earlier, is there are other variables where you don't want to control for them. You mentioned over-adjustment which is you know, typically referring to when you've controlled for a mediator, a variable that is part of the mechanism of the exposure. So it's not pre-exposure, it's actually post-exposure, pre-outcome. You don't want to control for a mediator unless you're doing a mediation analysis in general, if you want the total effect of the exposure, because then by controlling for it, you're kind of taking out part of the effect of the exposure. So again, your estimate might change, it might go down, um, but that's not because it was a confounder. And actually you may have introduced rather than mitigated bias by doing that. 
or uh, last example would be kind of um, conditioning on a variable as a collider. So that, that doesn't make it a confounder. That's great. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the issue of non-collapsibility because I think that is something that we really don't spend enough time teaching students about. Um, I also think that you know there are other scenarios that we need to think about where there is more than one source of bias and we're paying attention to only one of them, in this case, confounding. And, you know, we may have misclassified confounders or we may just have, you know, additional selection bias. We may have exposure and outcome measurement. And, you know, we're not really thinking about the joint effects of those different biases coming together and how we're, they may come together to impact the results of our, our particular analysis. Yeah, that is super interesting. And I honestly think that kind of multiple bias adjustment or sensitivity analysis feels like a frontier that's, you know, it's been explored, but maybe not as much as single bias issues, even though in reality, we very often do have multiple. And I think in particular, what you alluded to with when we have multiple biases, are they just purely additive or multiplicative with one another? Or do we get that the bias is even worse than than the sum of its parts, um, or maybe better than the sum of its parts. There are examples of the latter in, in meta analysis. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really um, interesting and like challenging uh, thing to try to think through. The idea of this change in estimate approach is something that when I'm teaching, students really love it. Oh, 10%? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. I can I can assess whether it changes by 10%. Oh, sure. Snap. I got confounding. And, you know, in this conversation, it's become very apparent, or it's a good reminder for me of, of why that criteria, like most criterion checklist type things, probably not the best approach when, when assessing confounding. So why do you think we keep teaching this to our students if it's if it's not particularly helpful as a as an approach to assess confounding? Well, I mean, it is nice that it's it's so easy, it's so falsifiable, right? I mean, one thing that's challenging about structural definitions is that they are structural, right? We're never actually going to see the DAG. And so if we define confounding in a way that inherently is about understanding the structure, then basically what we're doing is is making clear what our assumptions were um, rather than actually saying, okay, well, 10%, you know, I could just turn over to R and, and check, you know, how much the, the beta changes um, very easily. But under a structural understanding of confounding, we may or may not be able to empirically falsify um, you know, whether that variable actually is a confounder. So I do think some of it is kind of ease of use. I mean, I, I think in terms of, you know, what could we replace it with that's kind of a, an easier type of checklist? I mean, I think one thing that comes to my mind, and they talk about this in this book as well, is checklists about study design and the temporal ordering of the exposure, the confounders, and the outcome, more so than checklists about like changes in estimate. And so they give a nice hierarchy of study designs, kind of starting with cross-sectional data, essentially useless for causal inference, and then kind of building towards the best longitudinal study designs where you have confounders measured at baseline, as well as a version of the exposure and the outcome measured at baseline, followed by, in another wave, the actual exposure, followed by, in another wave, the outcome. And when you have a design like that, you can really get a lot farther. So I think, you know, probably more useful than if we, you know, given that we need to have simple rules of thumb, I think um, hierarchies of study design might be uh, preferable. Yeah, I, it's interesting you talk about that change in estimate of effect uh, being probably largely driven by the, you know, the ease, and maybe that's not a, a, a great approach. We, we talked about this on a 
previous episode, I, I think there are places for the change in estimate of effect approach, but I think it's not the most principled approach. On the other hand, you know, if we're talking about situations where adding a variable to the model really makes no change in the estimate effect, and all it does is widen the confidence intervals, which is, sounds like the scenario that Haley was, was laying out earlier, I, I do wonder if, you know, is, is, is that so bad? I mean, you're not creating any bias and you're probably just widening your confidence interval. And given that, you know, many of us believe that our confidence intervals as they are generated now are probably underestimates of the amount of uncertainty in a study, maybe it's not so bad. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and it seems to me like there's probably some sort of optimal bias variance trade-off there where, you know, if you're truly controlling for, like, let's assume that we know the structure and we, as you know, as you said, we actually have chosen confounders, not colliders or mediators or anything like that. Um, you know, in principle, controlling unnecessarily for a variable that's, uh, you know, above and beyond the other confounders, not actually producing additional bias uh, isn't going to create bias, but it, it is probably going to increase the variance because I'm paying, you know, one degree of freedom for putting that covariate in the model. And so there's probably, I don't know if this has been worked out formally, maybe it has kind of finding the, the optimal bias variance trade-off for how many to control for. I mean, I think, you know, I think there are kind of interesting analogs in uh, like the propensity score literature around how closely do you match? And there are these cool methods to kind of find the optimal caliber where you have exactly the same issue of like, you know, ideally you want perfect matches, which would correspond to fully controlling for all the confounders in their, you know, their full glory as continuous variables or <laughs> whatever they are. Um, but there is a trade-off because then you get fewer matches. And if you have fewer matches, then your data set is smaller. So maybe there's some analog to like regression-based adjustment. Yeah, the propensity score uh, issue, which you've sort of now brought into one approach for dealing with and controlling for confounders and confounding, uh, you know, the, the propensity score approach seems to me interesting insofar as it allows you to take a number of different confounders and, and summarize it. It's it's it's, you know, it can be based on a DAG for what you put in there, but at the end of the day, you are using a single number to control for all the confounding, not any sort of uh, set of variables that are, you know, structurally parents of, of the exposure and the outcome. But, you know, I, I would think that would be a pretty efficient way of going about removing the confounding because you're, you're summarizing, you know, lots of, of different potential confounding structures. Maybe some of them, you know, are, are not necessary, but because you're putting it all into one prediction score-based approach, you know, maybe it's not quite so bad. I know there's been a lot of work that's been done to actually to, to figure that out. I'm not quite as up on that literature, but it's it does seem to me, you know, potentially really useful. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to propensity score methods in general as well. I mean, I, I use both kind of regression-based adjustments and various forms of propensity score um, methods in, in my own empirical work. And, and I do think that this is an example of a case where propensity scores really shine um, or matching in some case where you have basically just a ton of covariates at your disposal um, because those methods, like let's take propensity score adjustment or you know, IPW as, as an example, because those methods separate out the, the modeling of covariates predicting the exposure from the outcome model, because you have a two-step procedure, you're not sticking all of those covariates in one single model. And so, um, you know, often that's cast in terms of it's, it reduces the possibility of misspecification because you have two models, so you don't have to have just one regression model. But 
it seems that there also could be cases where it, it helps with this kind of um, dimensionality problem. You could do whatever dimension reduction you you want with the propensity score model itself. Um, and, and then you're kind of free from having all these things in the outcome model as well. So the propensity score discussion is obviously um, very helpful when you have you know, all of those pretreatment variables. And let's say you're in a health database and you have tons of variables, you know, you can use those approaches. I find in my own work that that the problem I run into more, um, and certainly when I get questions from reviewers, is questions related to over-adjustment. So I just want to kind of pick your brain a little bit on this topic, because I think, in my opinion, it's not something we talk about enough. And I was really happy to see it as a section in the, the textbook, you know, because I think it is something we need to talk more about and teach more about. One of my most favorite papers, we sometimes ask our guests which papers they come back to. Um, Enrique Schusterman has a paper, something like over-adjustment and unnecessary adjustment in epidemiology. And it's one of my favorite papers that I, that I often go back to because I, I need to refer to these concepts when I'm responding to reviewers all the time. But okay, enough about that. Over-adjustment. So how, how do you define over-adjustment in, in epidemiology? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. So, I mean, I suppose you could define over-adjustment pretty broadly in terms of any basically conditioning on any variable that exacerbates rather than mitigates bias. I think more commonly it's used specifically to refer to conditioning on a variable that's a mediator. So again, something that's intermediate between the exposure and outcome. And I really agree. I, I, I don't think we talk about this enough in the applied world. I mean, yes. I think it's, it's pretty well understood in the more kind of theoretical side, but I think it really is a problem. I mean, just like just yesterday, I was reading a paper about um, you know, longitudinal study on the effects of distance running on osteoarthritis incidents. Okay, so does does running you know cause osteoarthritis, for example? Um, and they controlled for BMI, which they measured in between those two variables. And you know that actually could. It's an interesting case because that actually could kind of wipe out. Like, let's say running is you know is bad. It create causes osteoarthritis through like mechanical. I'm making this up, but let's suppose it were bad. Well, it could be that maybe having more weight on your joints is also bad. But if running reduces BMI, then it could be that you know the once you control for for BMI, um, it could make running look better or less bad than it actually is. So. And so that's an example where it highlights the need to be very careful about the timing at which we measure confounders and the timing of the way the waves of a study are structured. So kind of back to that hierarchy of high quality designs for causal inference, we really want to know that the confounders are measured prior to the exposure. So even if BMI is a confounder in the sense that, you know, maybe pre-running BMI has the structural qualities of a confounder, it might also subsequently be a mediator. And so we, we really can't know if we're over-adjusting or not if we have only cross-sectional data, for example. So I think my overall take on over-adjustment is that I think it's inescapable if we don't have longitudinal data with confounders measured prior to exposure. I think, yeah, I agree completely. And, and it's something, you know, my research is, is in BMI areas. And so, you know, it's something I run into a lot, but I think it's something people, and I apologize if this is generalizing, but in the applied research fields, don't pay much attention to. And there's certain covariates that you just put in the model. You know, if I had a, a dollar for every time I saw something like obesity and cardiovascular disease with the outcome, and they've adjusted for blood pressure, cholesterol, use of, of hypertensive medications, all of these variables that are directly 
affected by your obesity status. It's so maddening. And to push back on it, it's it feels futile because you know you're not going to change the the field and you're not going to change the culture of that field by by trying to push back on it. But I just I get I, I get so frustrated by that concept that nobody is paying any attention to it, even though I'm I'm clearly on my soapbox yelling about it. Yeah, and sometimes too, I think it's also a, a deficit in reporting. Um, I see this a lot in meta-analyses where, you know, maybe maybe all the studies were longitudinal, that's great, but they don't even say when the confounders were measured. There were multiple ways of data. And I don't I don't know, they just said that they controlled for BMI, but which BMI? Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's a case where it's, it's, the problem is very tractable. Like you have the data, you have the waves. It's just that you need to measure it at the right time. Um, and report when you measured and, and adjust it for it. I want to ask a follow-up question about overadjustment, which is when I think about overadjustment, I typically actually don't think about that term referring to adjusting for a mediator. I think about adjusting for variables that are not truly confounders, you know, so not associated with the exposure or outcome. So I, I think in reading the textbook, it's clear that my definition of that concept is wrong. What do you guys, where do you guys fall on that topic? Yeah, this is one of those cases where the ter- there are so many different definitions of the same term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, m- many, many definitions. I mean, and there are some cases where, um, you know, there are kind of so-called precision covariates that are associated with the outcome, but are totally you know, structurally unrelated to the exposure where adjusting for them might improve your variance, but not have any, you know, there won't be bias one way or the other with this variable. Um, and then there's other variables where you might condition on them essentially to get a conditional rather than a marginal effect in your model. Um but likewise, you know, are, are irrelevant for bias. Right. Um, so one thing, you know, I want to ask you about, because it's, it's your area of expertise, which is about bias and confounding in evidence synthesis. You've mentioned it a little bit in, in a previous answer to, to one of my questions. So can you tell me a little bit or tell us, I guess, a little bit about this work and, and how it relates to issues uh, particularly confounding? Yeah. So the general idea is that biases that you have in individual studies that go into an evidence synthesis like a meta-analysis if they themselves have bias that bias can propagate to whatever estimate you get from your meta-analysis typically the mean of kind of this underlying distribution of studies and so kind of the the classic way to describe this is garbage in garbage out like if you just meta-analyze a bunch of biased studies then you're you're probably gonna have bias in the end as well and i think it can be sort of particularly pernicious or misleading because meta-analyses do generally arrive at pretty precise estimates because they have a lot of studies, a lot of aggregated power. And so, but it could be that if they're biased, but they're even more precise than the most precise constituent studies, we could get this impression of like, oh, really tiny p-value and a really narrow confidence interval, but around an estimate that's no less biased than all the studies together. And so I basically see, I see the role of confounding and meta-analyses as important because increasingly it's clear with sort of the replication crisis in particular that accumulating evidence across studies is really important. And I think therefore it's important to characterize the credibility of meta-analytic findings with as much rigor and care as we do with individual studies, even though it's inherently harder when we have many studies to, to try to um, account for. So this, I guess, is kind of a naive question, but 
if you control for confounders in your individual studies that are going into your meta-analysis, you are not concerned with confounding in the meta-analysis. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah, that's that's not naive at all. I mean, barring kind of more unusual situations where, for example, you are comparing the effect sizes across studies to see whether, let's say, the treatment is uh, worked better in studies that were longer versus shorter. Those kinds of comparisons, which can be done through methods like meta-regression, can be subject to confounding, even if all the studies are not, because you're compa- because essentially those characteristics, like the length of follow-up, are not randomly assigned to studies. So you can have confounding kind of across studies rather than within studies. But you're right that in terms of kind of the classic scenario of we're just getting a mean estimate for the meta-analysis, yes, if the studies are unbiased, then the meta-analysis will be as well. This concept of confounding across studies is blowing my mind a little bit. So I'm trying to think through DAGs in my head, which is it's hard to do and it's hard to talk about on a podcast. But what are the variables that you're concerned about causing that confounding bias across studies? Or is, is that even the right question to be asking? Yeah, um, and I think you'd have to actually draw the DAG um, fundamentally differently. So in one study, you would have your exposure, let's say X, and your outcome, let's say Y. When you're making comparisons across studies in a meta-analysis, what you're comparing is the effect sizes of the studies as your outcome and as your exposure, some characteristic of the study, let's say the length oh, of follow-up. Yeah. So I think the way you'd want to draw it, and I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm thinking out loud here, but I think the way, I think technically if you wanted to, to make it formal is, that you would use on your DAG, the exposure would be length of follow-up of the study. And the the outcome would be the estimate of the study. And then the confounder would be something like expensiveness or something like it's more expensive to do a longer study, but also if you have more money to do your study, then maybe your your outcome will be better because you also had a better intervention in that study, something like that. Oh, cool. I've never thought about that before. That's really neat. Um, So if you are concerned about bias, specifically confounding, you know, with regard to meta-analyses, what approaches can one take? What do you do about it? Yeah, so historically there have been approaches that basically, um, I've called them in, in some work two-stage approaches where you essentially start with any number of sensitivity analysis or bias adjustment methods that apply to individual studies. And you go through each study in your meta-analysis and you do that one by one. That's typically going to involve a lot of external information about each study, like prevalence of the unmeasured confounders in each study, um, as well as kind of its associations with the exposure and the outcome. So you bias correct each individual study, and then you meta-analyze in the normal way, and then you're done. So there's that. Um, another approach that's cool is kind of multiple imputation. And this is, you can't really do it unless you have individual subject data for each study, but it is very interesting if, if you do. A more recent class of approaches I've called one-stage methods, which is where rather than trying to bias correct each individual study, you have some kind of sensitivity parameters about the distribution of bias across studies in the meta-analysis. And then using just that distribution, you then bias correct the meta-analysis directly. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And and 
with I'm glad you brought up this topic of bias correction because that's the last sort of section of the textbook. And to, to lead us off with that, I know an area that you have worked in is with the E-value, both in general, but also with regard to, to meta-analysis. So before we get into the meta-analysis aspect of the E-value, can you explain to us a little bit um, what the E-value is? And, and, and you know, I, I know they're a little bit controversial, so maybe explaining, you know, what some people say about why it's it's not a great tool, maybe? Yeah, sure. So the E-value is defined as the minimum strengths of association on the risk ratio scale that unmeasured confounders would need to have with both the exposure and the outcome conditional on any measured and adjusted confounders in order to explain away the exposure outcome relationship. And that is if we take or assume those two strengths of association, firstly with the exposure, secondly with the outcome, to be of equal magnitude to one another. An equivalent way to say that is that if unmeasured confounders have at least one of their two strengths of associations larger than the E-value, then it could be that they would be strong enough to explain away the effect, but weaker confounded could not. You need at least one of those associations to be at least as strong as the E-value. And so how do you come up with those quantitative estimates? Where do those numbers come from? So the interesting thing is they're, they're not estimates in the sense that all you have to do is, is basically there's sort of a one-to-one transformation of the observed risk ratio itself that gives you the E-value. And the reason that it doesn't involve any other information or sensitivity parameters per se is that, and I think this is, this is the crux of the E-value, what I'm about to say, both why people like it and why people don't like it. It's, it's conservative in the sense that it allows for the worst case bias that confounders could produce if those confounders had strengths of associations with the exposure and with the outcome that are equal to the E-value. So it basically says, I don't care what the prevalence of the confounder is. I don't care how many confounders there are. I don't care how they interact with one another. I don't care how they're associated with one another. I'm going to allow for kind of the worst case that confounders could produce in terms of bias, given their strengths of associations. And in a sense, I, you know, I like E-values and I, I think that that I see that as a strength. I think it's often the case that we simply don't know that much about unmeasured confounders. If we knew a lot about them, we probably would try to measure them and adjust for them. I think very often we really have no idea. Um, we don't know if it's a binary variable. We don't know how prevalent it is. The E-value in that regard is safe because it doesn't require us to specify those, those pieces of information. Now, critics point out, I think rightly so, that there are cases where we do have more information. We have some idea of what the confounder is. We have some idea that its prevalence is. Maybe we don't know exactly, but it's not It's not extreme, for example. And in those cases, the E-value might be quite conservative. It might give us an impression that our estimate is considerably less robust to unmeasured confounding than it would be if we were to also assume something about the prevalence. And so I think that is kind of one of the, the key critiques. It's, it's just, it's very conservative in some cases. Do you think that the E-value is an oversimplification of what the real world really looks like? Mm. I think that the E-value itself is not in the sense that it's a, a, it's a bound that has a very clear mathematical definition. But I do think that the way it's interpreted can be tricky. And I think this is another critique that has been sort of rightly leveled against E-values, which is that 
it might be hard for practitioners to really understand what the e-value is saying, because even though it has a very simple mathematical form and a, a clear theoretical definition, will practitioners really be able to think through situations like the way that the confounding strengths aggregate when you have multiple confounders, or will they just be confused and not understand that? Will they try to compare e-values to certain, will they want there to be like hard cutoffs and what is a bigger, bigger, small e-value, which you can't give. And I think that's a reasonable criticism. Um, it's essentially saying that, you know, we need education around how to report and, and think through e-values. Yeah, I, I think about them, you know, I, I agree with you that I, the criticisms I think are valid in, in some regards, but I also view them as better than doing nothing. You know, so if you're talking about the spectrum of, of sensitivity analysis for confounding, let's say you have the correct information on prevalence and, and relationships between the variables in your DAGs and, and you can do a full bias analysis uh, for unmeasured confounding or uncontrolled confounding, that's probably the best approach. If you're going to ignore the fact or just write qualitatively in your discussion, there might be some unmeasured confounding, but, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, you know, the e-value kind of falls in between there. So as long as it is interpreted cautiously correctly, you know, I, I do see it as having value. I just think we have a, because it's so new, especially, I think we have a long way to go before people sort of get comfortable with what the concept is and, and what it's telling you. I entirely agree. Yeah. And and we've since kind of written uh, papers that go through kind of the technical considerations of the e-value or on the other side that are much more applied and try to give reporting guidelines. But I agree. I think there's definitely going to be an iteration process of trying to understand the way they're used in practice and how we can try to help improve that. But I definitely agree that, I mean, before e-values, unfortunately, the status quo in many applied papers was simply just to not do anything quantitative for yeah. sensitivity analyses, you know, basically just have a paragraph in the discussion that says, unfortunately, there might be unmeasured confounding, who knows how much it might matter, you know, at the end. And, and you know, at least the e-value does give us some, some quantitative sense uh, with which we can benchmark those kinds of qualitative statements. Yeah, one other criticism that I've thought about and I wanted to ask you about is is the fact that the e-value doesn't make any kind of assumptions or relationship to actual variables in the real world. It's not telling you about, you know, smoking as an unmeasured confounder or, you know, several unmeasured confounders. And this is a criticism that I've thought about because in some of my work, when I look at collider stratification bias, we talk about uh, a U variable, an unmeasured variable, kind of unspecified. And and somebody told me once, your DAG is useless. You're, you're with If you're just adding in a U and kind of throwing up your hands and saying, there might be a U, it might be important. And so this is, you know, I, I think the parallel could be drawn with the E value, which is that, you know, there might be a confounders or confounding uh, that could make a difference. We don't really know, but it could be this way, it could be that way. And so, so I, I guess I, I wanted to hear your thoughts about that as a criticism of the E value itself. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's true for sensitivity analyses more broadly. If we define sensitivity analyses as methods that tell us sort of what would happen under some hypothetical amount of bias generated from whatever source. And so I think that, yeah, a, a key point about the e-value that I think we have tried to emphasize in, in teaching and writing is that the final step is, is not reporting the e-value, but rather thinking about how plausible it is in practice that you actually could have unmeasured confounders sufficiently strong so as to to meet the e-value. 
And that's going to involve thinking about the study design. It's going to involve thinking about what other variables were adjusted in the analysis. And, and so that's why we can't really just give like a blanket rule of thumb for what's a large or small e-value. Like you do really need to think about the plausibility in context, but yeah, it's true. You can't just say, oh, well, the e-value told me that there's an unmeasured confounder, you know, strike two. (laughs) Wouldn't that be so nice and simple? (laughs) Yeah. That would really solve a lot of our problems if we just had a number that we could, you know, point to. But obviously that's not how it works in, in the real world. Or I guess it's a good thing because then we'd be out of a job. Well, then we would have measured confounding and we'd, we'd be happy again. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. One of my most favorite comments that I ever received uh, as, as part of a, a paper that I was reviewing was the reviewer said, well, why don't you use the propensity score to adjust for unmeasured confounding? <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> and 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 it was at that point that I realized that we are so far apart from each other right now that I'm not really sure what how to move this forward. But yes, it, if we had measured confounding, it would solve a lot of our problems in in this regard. Um, okay, well, well, thanks for for chatting with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for for coming on. And uh, it was really nice to hear your perspectives on this. I love that you are one of the biostatisticians out there that does a terrific job at explaining these things to epidemiologists like myself. So thank you for bringing that perspective and sharing it with us. And um, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks so much for having me on, Haley. Much appreciated. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which gives you access to great learning materials, seminars, and activity. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one. Finally, as a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our episode next month.